Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show for you today, but first, I want to ask you for a favor. Please subscribe to this podcast, if you don't already, that is. Also, take a second to rate and review our show in your podcast app, especially if you're a regular listener. That will help other people find us. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. I don't know about you, but I've been feeling more vulnerable this year with the coronavirus out there, on top of all the usual things like colds and flu. So we wanted to take an in-depth look at the body's built-in defense to all of these threats. Your immune system. What makes it work better or not run as well as it should? Are there things you can do to help it out? And can you really boost it? We're talking about that today with Dr. James Crow Jr. of Vanderbilt University. He's a professor of pediatrics and pathology and the director of the Vanderbilt Vaccine Center. You might have seen his TED Talk called Unraveling the Mystery of Immunity. Welcome, Dr. Crow. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's start with a definition of what the immune system is. If you were to explain it to someone at a cocktail party, or maybe these days, a small socially distanced outdoor gathering, how would you describe it? Well, that actually is an interesting question. When you think about the parts of your body, typically uh, doctors talk about uh, tissues. So you have your, um, your liver tissues and those are organized into an organ. So we could open up your belly and see a physical uh, liver that has limits to it or your heart uh, or your spleen, things like that. So those are organs that um, are brought together with tissues. The immune system is quite different because it's in every place in your body. So uh, the immune system is composed of uh, cells. You typically think of them as blood cells because they're circulating around. And so that's how the immune system distributes throughout the body because it travels through the blood. And the, just to remind you, the blood has several components. One is the red blood cells that carry oxygen they're not classically thought of as part of the immune system. They're more of an oxygen carrying system, but also in the blood are the white blood cells. Uh, and there are many different types of white blood cells and that um, portfolio of different types of cells constitutes your immune system. So it travels through your blood and then distributes to all the other tissues throughout your body. And, and all of these cells, you have a large number of them. They have to coordinate uh, and interact and, and speak, it's a, it's a network. And that's why we speak of a system uh, because there are many individual cells, but they're all interacting with each other. And by doing that type of communication, they make a system. But it's nothing necessarily concrete that to your point, you could open someone's body and, and see it. It's more of just, you know, kind of a subtle system throughout the body. Well, everywhere we look, we see it. So if I, um, put a needle into your hip bone and took out a bone marrow sample, which is what we use to do transplants with people, uh, that's chock full of where the immune system is sort of birthed and made. Hmm. Uh, if I took a blood sample and just did a smear and looked under the microscope, I would see lots of white blood cells. But also if I, um, if I uh, took a bowel biopsy, something from your gut and looked, there's lots of immune cells sitting right underneath the surface of the gut uh, ready to protect you if anything gets across that barrier. So anywhere you look, you see components of the immune system, uh, but you'd have to look at the entire body to see the entire immune system. 
I see. That makes sense. How much does its ability vary from person to person? You know, when someone tells you, oh, I never get sick, uh, is it because they have a particularly strong immune system? Well, there are differences between people and their genes, and that, that's been one of the principal um, discoveries from the Human Genome Project. Uh, and as you know, uh, a lot of money and time was spent when technologies were not very efficient to figure out how many genes there are in the human body. And, and there's a relatively small number of them. There's less than 25,000 genes that encode our entire body. And once that was determined for one person, uh, now the technologies allow us to do it for uh, anyone. And I, I saw an offer in my inbox, my email this week, uh, you can get this done for uh, our research phases for about $250 now. So you can, you can get your genome done. And when we, when we compare uh, individuals, they're very similar, but there are differences. And there's so many letters in the genetic code that uh, people will vary uh, between each other in millions of places in their, in their genome. And so these genetic differences can be in almost any gene, really. And so uh, it's true that you and I might differ at many of our genes, certainly we do, uh, and some of those genes might be immune system genes. So it's, it's conceivable that there are people who have a constellation of variations that if you add them all up, put them at a, a relatively higher risk of things like a high fever or, um, or a low fever or things like that. So uh, the difficulty is most of these effects are not just one gene. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, when you start taking 25,000 genes in combinations and there are millions and millions of uh, letters in that code, it, it becomes difficult to decipher the combinations that make people more or less susceptible things. So that's why we're not so clear about it. Um, but one other thing I would say is we know from uh, what, what people would call genetic experiments of nature uh, in which people are born lacking a gene, completely lacking for some reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and those people often will be immunodeficient. They'll show up with an infection that no one else gets who's healthy. And that infection gives us a clue that something's amiss with them. And if we sequence their genome, we'll find whole genes that are missing. And if you're missing uh, a gene in your immune system, there's a good chance you're going to have uh, more susceptibility to either certain infections or all infections. So there's, there's genetic defects which are profound and then there's genetic variations where you and I might differ we'd be healthy but on a spectrum more or less susceptible to things interesting so and it's not as if it's you know there's not one single gene for the immune system it's it's very much sounds like it's very much tied to many perhaps hundreds of different genes in every there's thousands DNA. Yeah, there's thousands of genes exactly right, that are involved in the immune system right uh, yeah we often see claims that, you know, this supplement or that food can, quote, boost your immune system. Is that really possible or is the best we can do just support the immune system and not, you know, boost it above its normal level, whatever that may be? That's a good question. I think most of us have a sense that there are healthy lifestyles and when we're leading a healthy lifestyle, we feel better and we seem to get sick less. And there is 
uh, evidence for that. So your body needs to sleep uh, and sleep deprivation has widespread effects on many of your health processes, uh, but including your resistance to infection. Uh, there are studies of people who do uh, extreme athletic events. You know, you go out and run a hundred miles and after the hat for a week or two, you may be more susceptible uh, to infections. And that, that isn't an immune thing. You went running, but some kind of um, metabolic cost of what you just did. So sleep deprivation, um, other metabolic events, uh, things like that. So I think everybody has an intuitive sense. Uh, if I don't eat well, sleep well, um, exercise occasionally or regularly, at some point, my general health will go down. And a part of that is susceptibility to infection. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the notion that you could go to uh, a drugstore and buy something over the counter or buy a nutritional supplement uh, and take a single um, substance that's not proven in medical science and all of a sudden your immune system would be boosted, um, it's not clear that there are such things. And I think in the medical world, it sort of depends on your perspective of how how you know things. So in the medical world, uh, we have, we're operating under uh, a model in which we really, under evidence-based medicine, we only accept findings that have been done in uh, placebo-controlled trials where we know if you, if you take the substance, you get the effect, and if you don't, you don't get the effect. That's the only way that uh, in evidence-based medicine, we really accept things work. And so virtually none of these nutritional supports have ever been shown to be effective in that way. You know, on the other hand, they all haven't been tested in that way. So there is some ambiguity, uh, you know, so e they're either don't work or they're not proven to work. And so, you, you know, right. I, I would say it's ambiguous. Uh, th there have been some, uh, some studies that are very intriguing, um, there's a substance in red wine. So there was observation that uh, Mediterranean diet and Europeans often have uh, better longevity than in other societies. And a central component of that was not only the oils and you know, various lifestyle things, but uh, a glass of red wine. And then people were trying to deconvolute what's in red wine that makes you live longer. Um, and Resevertrol was identified and then people have taken that as a supplement and, and still it's ambiguous. So I think, it's not that uh, medical people never go down this route. Uh, it's just hard to, uh, it's hard to identify anything with certainty that is of benefit, I would say, at this point. Certainly. And it's, you know, the supplements that are sold, you know, on pharmacy shelves or in natural food stores, those do not have to, you know, the claims that they make about the effects that they have don't necessarily have to be verified by the FDA. Is that correct? Well, they're, they're being very careful because they're not making medical claims because if you make a medical claim, the FDA will say you're not allowed to make that claim. So if you read the packages carefully, they don't say they do anything for you. They say words like you use support or uh, something like that. They don't say uh, cure or treat. They will never say treat, you know, because that, that's an FDA claim. That makes sense. But on the other hand, I, I think you know, whatever you want to do that makes you feel comfortable, that's not toxic, that's fine. So for instance, a lot of my career, I've worked on respiratory viruses and immunity to respiratory viruses and vaccines. And I'm obviously a, a research scientist and a physician, but 
at the same time, when I get a cold, a common cold, I like um, for the smell of menthol in my nose. It makes me feel better. And it's, it's well known menthol in your nose doesn't do anything for your symptoms uh, or for the virus or for your health, but you feel better, you know? So if you feel better, more power to you. I think you just need to be careful not to uh, do extreme things. So if you take really high doses of things like vitamins, for instance, you can, you can hurt yourself. So just right. use common sense. If you're treating your symptoms and you want to take honey and lemon tea and you think that makes you feel better, I would not presume to make an immune system claim, but certainly feel better. So do it. You know, that's, that's my perspective on those things. Sure. I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned vitamins because I think vitamin C is something that people, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's, you know, cold and flu season, or I, I think I feel the sniffles coming on. I'm going to take some vitamin C and help out my immune system. Is What about the science behind that? Is there anything proven there? There have been a lot of studies and there's no clear benefit of taking vitamin C. But at normal doses it doesn't hurt you if you take mega doses it has toxicity so i think if you want to take it that's fine uh but there there's no clear benefit of taking it for to prevent infection or uh to treat infection okay um you mentioned before you know kind of some of the basic things that people can do to take care of their immune system and keep it working at its you know optimal levels, things like exercise, sleep, good nutrition, things like that. Can you, for example, with, with sleep, can you kind of break down the connection for us between getting enough good quality sleep and the immune system? How are those two things linked? Yeah, well, your immune system is embedded in your body, which is a, a larger system. And so uh, a lot of what sleep um, has to do with is how your brain is controlling the rest of your body. So uh, your sleep sleep wake cycles affect your brain. Your brain has sort of a central command system that's sending out uh, essentially hormones. So your brain will, as small areas that will secrete proteins that then travel through your blood all over your body and tell your body to do things. And um, so if you stress that system by uh, lack of sleep, then you get uh, physiologic stress, lack of repair of all of your tissues and so on. And then you start having stress hormones floating around uh, that are warning you uh, to stop doing whatever you're doing. So um, you may know uh, in a school bus, for instance, there's a, often a device called a governor on the speed because we don't want school bus drivers driving 80 miles an hour with kids in it. So a lot right. of school buses can't go more than 55 miles an hour or something like that. So it's a hard stop. And, and in some ways your brain does this too. It has a, a central governor in which if you, if you don't sleep for three days, your brain will just take over and put you to sleep whether right. you want to or not. So um, the, the brain is uh, controlling a lot of things. And these stress hormones also interact with the immune system. And so um, that's one thing. And one, one of the really important ones is cortisol. So cortisol levels go up and down during the day and they're regulated with your sleep cycle. Uh, and uh, cortisol interacts with the immune system. So it's, it's this interplay of all of your tissues uh, and your brain controlling it uh, where sleep kicks in. 
What about something like exercise, which is more, you know, obviously it's, you know, muscles and cardiovascular system. How is that linked to something like the immune system? Um, well, um, that's a good question. I'm not an expert in exercise physiology, but there, there are, um, there are a lot of effects of exercise, uh, including, you know, I just mentioned the, the central control of the brain. We also get beneficial hormones and responses. And typically with uh, exercise, there, there's some good things that go on in your brain and you feel good, certainly afterwards. Um, the, the other thing is um, uh, obesity and uh, fat cells are known to be an immune organ actually now. It was not always known to be, but there's a lot of... Uh, immune cells and adipose tissue. And in fact, the, the, the more obese you become, the more in an inflammatory state you're in. Uh, so that's not good for you. And so for instance, if we look at the response to flu vaccine uh, and people, if you are obese, you do not respond as well. And then if you get flu infected, you may have more severe disease because you're already at an inflammatory set point because of the adipose tissue. So part of what exercise does is regulate um, your energy stores, uh, not just the, the sugar and um, you know, glycogen in your liver, but the, the fat, the lipids. And so keeping lipid and adipose tissue under control and in a non-inflammatory state is part of what exercise gives you. That's interesting. Um, fat cells having a, you know, being known now to have more of an effect on your you know, things like inflammation in your body and, and thus your immune system. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the coronavirus. Um, why is it that something like this virus is such a huge challenge to the immune system? And how is it that some people are able to fight it off with mild symptoms and or not even know they have it while others are, you know, have these very serious effects and can even die from it? Yeah, we're still trying to figure out uh, why coronavirus does what it does. So there, there are many different types of coronaviruses in nature and in humans. We have a lot of experience uh, looking at what are called the seasonal or endemic coronaviruses. So there's some common cold ones, and they have weird laboratory names, 229E, OC43, and HKU1, things like this. So they have strain names. And we see those in, in about 5% of the common cold at all, at all times, and they don't make you particularly ill. Uh, but then there was also the SARS-1 outbreak and then the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome uh, outbreaks that are still sort of ongoing, and now SARS-CoV-2. And so these are much more uh, difficult pathogenic coronaviruses. And so by comparing the, the common cold ones to the, the more severe ones, we're getting some clues. Um, the, um, uh, so I, I would say it's not fully resolved because the massive studies are going on right now, but coronavirus appears to, uh, induce a, a large amount of inflammation that is sort of dysregulated. So, uh, I like to think of the immune system sort of as a double-edged sword. So if you have an infection and you have cells that are infected, you've got to get rid of that tissue. So essentially, immune system comes in 
and does a little excision. It cuts out the cell. It basically kills the cells that are infected. And that's how you immediately stop an infection. You remove the infected cells by killing them with your immune system. But the problem is if your immune system is killing your cells, at some point you'll pay a price uh, for dead cells in your body. It's not good for your cells to die. So immune system's kind of trying to titrate this. It's a Goldilocks uh, dilemma, just enough inflammation to kill the infected cells and get rid of it, but not so much that it kills you. Mm -hmm. And it looks like in coronavirus, there's, there's kind of two waves. There's sort of a first uh, damage that's caused directly by the virus getting into your respiratory tract and down into your lungs. And then there's a, maybe a later phase where you get a lot of inflammation and it's not regulated properly. It tends to burn out of control like a fire. So, um, you know, we, we have fires in California right now. And they're, uh, if you're a firefighter, you can do a, a controlled burn in a little strip, you know, as a prevention. And that's kind of what the immune system is trying to do. But if the fire jumps through that, then you have this enormous region. And I think that's sort of what we're seeing in SARS-CoV-2, where inflammation um, you know, your body's turning it on and turning it off at all times, on, off, on, off, and trying to modulate it into the proper, appropriate level and then turn it back off completely once infection's gone. It looks like things kind of get out of control in the second, second and third weeks of infection and you get a lot of inflammation you don't need and it doesn't help you anymore. Even after the virus is gone, sometimes the inflammation is still activated. So I think that's what we're trying to figure out is why, why does the inflammation um, expand in a, to an inappropriate degree? Mm. Yeah, this virus is only, or we've only been aware of it for, you know, what has it been, six or seven months at this point. So it's not like scientists have had a lot of time to figure that kind of stuff out, but more to come on that, I'm sure. Right. Um, I'm glad you mentioned sort of the you know, sometimes the immune system getting out of control and, and causing damage, because that is, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's, you know, essentially what an autoimmune condition is when the immune system mistakenly attacks the body. Um, do we know much about why that happens for, for some people? And autoimmune conditions, you know, can be anything from rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, those kinds of conditions. Yes, um, I, I would say we have made progress in understanding the diseases, but uh, still our knowledge is incomplete and it's a little frustrating. So um, the common theme in most of those diseases is some type of uh, inflammation that's not being regulated properly. So if we look at all human individuals and say, well, the immune system our intuitive sense is that the immune system should be our defense. It should look for foreign invaders like viruses or bacteria that shouldn't be there and eliminate those, but it should never turn against us because it should know, you know, we are ourselves. And that is to some extent how it works. But if you look carefully in healthy people in the white blood cells that I mentioned at the beginning, if, if you look through, you can find that almost everyone has the ability to recognize themselves. Their white blood cells uh, will attach to their own tissues in various places. 
but the trick is you, you also have this uh, suppression. So you have other cells floating around uh, that are talking. And I, and I mentioned this at the beginning. Again, there, this is a not individual sort of rogue cells doing their own thing. They, they have to interact. And so when a, um, a, a cell recognizes uh, what it's looking for, which is this antigen, if that's a virus, then several other types of cells will give it a license and say, you're allowed to activate and you're allowed to start um, secreting chemicals that are dangerous. So the cell itself uh, does not act alone. It, it initiates the action, it activates, but then other types of cells will communicate with it and say, I also see the invaders. So it's like a confirmation and, and the system as a whole uh, increasingly escalates the, the response to the thing that's seen. Now in the, in the cells that are seeing your own body, the auto-reactive or what would be autoimmune cells, they're there in everyone, but all the other communicating cells say there's no danger here, I don't see anything bad, there's no dead cells, um, we think you should not activate. That's how the, the cells are communicating. And in fact, there are some of the white blood cells that are actively suppressing at all times. So uh, it's like you have white blood cells that are like elite troops going around and they're, they're trigger happy and they're, they're ready to shoot their chemicals. And you have other cells that are saying, calm down, uh, there's no danger here and I want you to disarm yourself. So there's, there's activation and suppression. And so if any of those things go awry, then you could imagine that a cell that sees your own body that should not activate, if it's not suppressed in the right moment, it would activate and then start attacking your own cells. So, so it's very complicated where you have a recognition of yourself at all times, but um, lack of activation because the other cells do not see danger. And then you have active suppression telling you not to activate um, at all times. And it's only when those suppression signals are relieved. So, um, but anywhere in that cycle where things uh, don't work properly, then the cells can activate and attack your, your cells. And it just depends on what their specificity is. So right. if they attack your skin or your gut or your liver or your brain, you'll get a different disease expression. Interesting. And it's based on my understanding of autoimmune conditions. It seems like sometimes the triggers that cause those, those changes to happen, it's, it could be just about anything. Like it's not necessarily clear all the time what causes that change to happen in someone's immune system. Yes, there's been a search for decades, you know, what are the triggers? Uh, and then a, a very common model for what we've been seeking is that um, in some cases, an, a foreign molecule might appear very similar in structure or sequence to a host uh, protein or structure, like a human protein and a virus protein might be very similar. Ah. In that case, you would respond appropriately to the virus and that immune response might cross-react with your body. And there are some instances of that. Um, and this makes it very complicated. For instance, um, there is um, a bacterium that causes meningitis, Neisseria meningitidis, um, 
uh, meningococcal meningitis, if you've heard of that. So mm -hmm. um, this uh, historically occurred on college campuses when kids would come together uh, in close housing or religious uh, pilgrimages in Saudi Arabia, that sort of thing. So um, over time, vaccines were developed for all the major Neisseria meningitis strains, but there was one um, which is called the B type, and antigens on the B type looked very similar to human brain. And so the, the vaccine world got stuck because if you made a vaccine for meningitis to protect your brain, it would also cross-react with your brain. Oh, and yeah. It, it took decades for uh, vaccine experts to figure this out. And now, you know, now there is a way to do it and we have a licensed meningitis vaccine. So um, I think that's also going on during infection. I mean, vaccines is a particular case, but um, infections will mimic tissues of the body and you'll get this cross-reactivity. But in, in reality, it's been hard to identify those antigens. Um, that makes you know, sense. People have looked for them. They suspect they're there. Uh, like diabetes is an example where people think there, there seem to be some virus infections followed later by diabetes. And, you know, people are trying to figure out other viral antigens that look like your pancreas. Many mysteries of the immune system left to be unraveled. The immune system has also proven to be a key part of research on different types of conditions like cancer, for example, that are not caused by viruses for the most part. Um, can you help people understand how it's involved in those conditions? Yeah, well, this is uh, an amazing thing that's going on in medicine right now, and I bet you most people don't uh, understand how revolutionary the advances are. So uh, we talked about in, in, during infection, you need an appropriate turn on and turn off response. In autoimmunity, you have an inappropriate turn on response when you shouldn't have it. And cancer generally is a state in, when you, in which you have an inappropriate lack of response. So you've got something bad going on. It is a cell that's growing out of control uh, and it needs to be killed. So your immune system will kill cells that um, are not proper and you're doing this all the time. So I think most of us have this sort of intuitive idea cancer comes out of the blue, but that's not true. You have cells that are not correct being made in your body all the time and every day you're killing those cells. And so part of what happens in cancer is the elimination of uh, aberrant cells, mutated cells breaks down. And that elimination is done by the immune system. So if the immune system stops clearing the bad cells, they can accumulate. And if those cells grow very, very fast, then you have you know, cancer form. So what's happening in the last 10 years in the research field um, is understanding that suppression. How does cancer, how do cancer environments suppress the immune system? And we understand some of that now. Uh, and it's even possible to go in and turn off the suppression and to relieve the suppression and allow the immune system to activate as it should. And that's called immunotherapy. And there's a lot of active clinical trials with immunotherapy. Uh, and people are very excited. There was a recent Nobel Prize given for discovery of immune checkpoints is what they're called or the places where you would suppress immune system. So, uh, you know, in summary, infection responses typically are just right and 
autoimmunity is too much and cancer is too little. And so as we learn how to manipulate and turn the knobs of the immune system, if your body's not doing it for you, we might be able to step in. And so during an immunotherapy, we turn the immune system back on. or Actually, we de-repress it. It's being repressed, and we stop the repression, and then your body takes care of the cancer. That's how it actually works. That's so interesting. And to your point, some of these immunotherapy drugs have been hugely successful in cancers that didn't have a lot of um, treatment options before, which has been really, uh, I'm sure, very encouraging for a lot of scientists out there and people living with cancer, of course. Um, yes, I, I would say they've been dramatically successful. So in diseases where all is lost, there are people who've been completely cured within weeks from these immunotherapies. Uh, they don't always work in all people, and I think that's sort of where we are um, trying to understand uh, why are some people responding to these drugs and others not. And there, as with any medical intervention, there are side effects, and there, there have been some instances, uh, my colleagues here at Vanderbilt have been studying where if you de-repress the immune system, you kill the cancer, but you also attack your heart, and that's not good for you. So. Uh, it's early days with immunotherapy, but I think the, the suggestion is we have a powerful new tool, and if we learn how to use it properly, uh, we're going to make major advances in cancer therapy. Certainly. could be very exciting. Um, since you direct Vanderbilt's vaccine program, are you working on a COVID-19 vaccine right now? Well, there's so many vaccines being tested in the world. There's hundreds that are moving forward, and dozens that are in trials and some of the efficacy trials are about to end. So it's this amazing time in history to see the vaccine enterprise respond so quickly. My, some of my colleagues are testing vaccines that have been made elsewhere. The Moderna vaccine was the first one and you know, others. Um, so we're doing a lot of testing of those vaccines. Our own center, our research center here at Vanderbilt um, has focused on uh, another aspect of immunity, and that's using antibodies to transfer immunity. So the technology is called monoclonal antibodies. So one of the things you can do, and it is being done during COVID, is to uh, take the, the antibodies from one person and move them to another, and this is called convalescent plasma therapy. So right, like someone, who's, someone who has recovered from COVID can go donate their plasma and help someone else, perhaps. Yes. And so what we're doing there is we're moving um, antibodies, which are the, the, the way that your immune system inhibits a virus. They secrete these proteins called antibodies, and they're in, in the liquid part of your blood. So we can purify that out from one person and give it to another. And that's great because you get instant immunity in the person who receives the plasma. But the problem is each donor or each person who has survived and donating has a different level of antibodies and it's difficult to make, make that product the same every time. And so uh, what we're doing instead is uh, looking through the white blood cells in the donor person and identifying single cells, these are called B cells, which are the cells that make the antibody. And by various molecular biology magic, we can get the genes for one antibody out of that person and make that like a drug. And so we can make the protein in the lab or even in the factory. And uh, we have found thousands of antibodies that inhibit 
uh, SARS-CoV-2, and we had transferred uh, some of these antibodies to commercial partners. So um, this is a, a thing you, you'll read about in the news where various companies are testing antibodies. Uh, Lilly has a program, Regeneron has a program of antibodies, uh, and AstraZeneca is in the clinic. So the, the antibodies we made here at Vanderbilt were licensed to AstraZeneca, uh, and they're testing them in trials. So uh, this is very cool because then you have a drug that's very reproducible. You make it under good manufacturing practices, and you know what it is, and then you transfer it in, uh, and you know what to expect after the clinical trials. So anyway, that's been our focus is uh, making human monoclonal antibodies to transfer instant immunity to people. That's very interesting, um, and certainly an area that I know lots of uh, people are, are interested in and excited about, so we'll have to keep an eye on your, the outcome of your research. Lastly, we're heading into the fall and winter when what, by all accounts, by public health experts are that it might end up being kind of a tough fall and winter since we have both the coronavirus circulating as well as um, potential for flu outbreaks and things like that. So what are the things that you, as a, an expert on the immune system, will be doing to um, make sure that your body, body's defenses are prepared and ready to protect you uh, this fall and winter? Well, they're just simple things to do. I certainly should get your flu vaccine. I get my flu vaccine every year. Yes. Uh, because I don't want to get flu, and also I don't want to give it to my friends and family. So there, there's various reasons. At our place at Vanderbilt, you're required to get the flu vaccine anyway because we're a healthcare system right. and we don't, we don't want to infect our patients. Um, so the we don't really know yet, but the, if you were to get SARS-CoV-2 and flu closely spaced and you had a you know a significant illness with both, um, that that could be bad news for people, you know, individuals as well as the population. So I think there is concern about that. Um, but also with masking and social distancing, if you follow those things, uh, it looks like what we've seen in South America, uh, and, and so the seasons are reversed in North and South America for flu. So during the North American summer, South America is having their winter. So in the season uh, that um, occurred in South America, it looked like as soon as distancing occurs and flu is circulating, you, you you reduce flu transmission as well, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think we're all hoping that uh, even though we know flu is coming and coronavirus will still be here, we're hoping people will follow masking, distancing, and hand washing, and that'll reduce flu also. Um, and, and I would not say it's gonna be a great winter because we've still got SARS-CoV-2 around, which is causing a lot of problems. But if we could reduce both of those by the conventional manner, and get flu vaccine, that's going to set you up for your, your best possible outcome. Another plug for getting your flu shot, which is super important as we, uh, we talk about often on health now. So <laughs> that's great yeah. to hear. Um, yeah. Dr. James Crow, thank you so much for taking a deep dive on the immune system with us. We appreciate your, uh, your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. One more thing before we go, though. Please make sure you've subscribed to our show so you don't miss any of our great episodes. And just a reminder that you can keep up with WebMD's coverage on coronavirus and all things health and wellness on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Hope you'll join us next time.